Hey, I'm Scott. I'm Chate, and we are the Hazes. So first of all, I want to welcome you all back for the second season of The Love Haze. Um, we're excited about all the work that we were able to do in the first season. We're talking about healing and wholeness and the inner work of doing what you need to do in order to get to uh, the best version of yourself. Uh, in this season, we're going to do some transition and along the lines of the belief that after you do your healing, after you do that internal work, then there is getting to your purpose work. The thing that you're supposed to be doing um, to benefit our community, to benefit the entire world. So this season, we're going to be talking more about leaning into that purpose work. Lean in. That's right. We believe here at the Love Haze that life will always be a haze, but you have a choice to show up healed and hold. And also this season with purposeful action as mm -hmm. well. So today we're going to be joined by Maurice Hobson who is Associate Professor of African-American Studies and a historian at Georgia State University. He's been the consultant historian for a number of documentary documentaries to include ESPN's 30 for 30 on Vic and also Atlanta's Missing and Murdered, The Lost Children. Maurice Hobson, or Mo Hobson, is also my fraternity butt, brother and a member of Omega Stop Five fraternity. <laughs> Welcome, dog. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, brother. Well, I want to jump us off into the conversation. One of my favorite things to do is really hear about the work that people do. Um, I was just actually talking to someone about this recently. You know, the work that a lot of us do um, at this age are, is not professions we heard about when we were growing up, right? We heard about, you know, doctors, lawyers. We saw, you know, NBA sports stars on TV. Um, but a lot of the things that we do to kind of like really move forward the culture, the community, um, either some of those jobs were just newly formed, you know, with technology and, you know, those kind of uh, uh, improvements or enhancements. But other things I think have always been here um, just kind of behind the scenes and no one ever really talked about them. So I first want to know, like, tell us more about what you do and how you actually started doing that work. So uh, my day job is that I am a uh, I'm a professional historian. I'm a political historian. I'm trained in the fields of African-American, the total arc of African-American history and 20th century U.S. history. I'm a historian trained in political science, sociology and economics, mm -hmm. meaning that I have many methods, uh, unlike, you know, uh, some other historians that just purely do historical work. But I mean. I, I truly believe that the way in which I got into this work is that, you know, the creator called me to do it. And uh, I'm one of those persons to where um, I'm more of a heat seeker, meaning uh, I've always given attention to things that have given attention to me uh, instead of trying to make someone like me or to make, you know, communities really, you know, engage me. I'm one of those persons to pay attention to where what what things are gravitating to me and to make um, and, and to make the best of it. Um, just just really quickly and how I got into the work though. Um, my family is from Mississippi and Louisiana and I was born in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, my family is 10 generations into the United States in terms of coming through the ports of New Orleans. Uh, my family is from really from Jackson, Mississippi down to the coast, the Mississippi coast. And so um, with that being said, uh, I grew up in Selma, Alabama. And in my family, if you don't live in Mississippi, Louisiana, you live in Chicago. And so as a kid, we would travel to Chicago. That's where the family, you know, would migrate. 
and whatever, whatnot. But I just so happened to grow up in Alabama. And there's an interesting story on how I grew up in Alabama. Um, my father was a was an epidemiologist and he studied sickle cell. And the highest concentration of sickle cell anemia in North America is in the black belt of Alabama. Yeah. So here it is. I grew up in Alabama with these like Mississippi roots. And um, I was known as the, the son of the, 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 the man who would come to school and draw blood from kids, particularly black kids, to see if they had the sickle cell trait. And so um, never really paying attention to any of that. But, but being born in Jackson and then growing up in Selma and later going to college in Birmingham and graduate school in Tuscaloosa and then going to Tuskegee, you can see that there is a connection in terms of civil rights and, 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 and black struggle. Yeah. Um, when I was growing up, my um, my seventh grade teacher, uh, social studies teacher, my mother was a school teacher and, and really advocated for black history. But my seventh grade school teacher was a woman by the name of Joanne Mance. And she was a she is a powerful woman, but she was also a part of a couple, a married couple with Bob Mance, who were major civil rights players in the Alabama Black Belt in, in a little area called Whitehall in between Selma and Montgomery. Yeah, I know about Whitehall. Yeah, you know, it's it's where the uh, the drop-off is. It's where the, the little holy ground is. It's a, it's a yeah. little area, like a picnic area. And so um, also in the seventh grade is when um, there was basically a race war that broke out in Selma, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And what basically happened is there was, the, the short story is that there was a firing of the superintendent, uh, his name was Norwood Roussel. He ended up going to Tuskegee after he left. So he got fired by all white school board and it was racism and all hell broke loose. And basically what it was is, you know, a series of fights took place between black kids and white kids. And then um, black protesters kind of stormed the school to demand, you know, excellent education. And there were issues around tracking. Mm -hmm. And what happened with that is, all of the white kids that I'd grown up with left the public school system and went to the all white private academies. So I went from like playing, being the only black kid to play soccer in Selma, Alabama to like not seeing white people from the seventh through 12th grade. Wow. And, 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 I, and the pictures that I can show you of me, like, you know, being the goalie for the all white soccer team in Selma, Alabama. And when my grandmother would see it, she would say, baby, are they mistreating you? Why they, why you, why you got on different clothes? But what happened with that is when we went back to school, not only had all the white kids left um, the public schools, they surrounded the school with the National Guard. That was in 1990. And it was also at that same time where you start, you know, getting the films like, you know, uh, School Days was, you know, a couple of years before. You got Do the Right Thing coming out. You got Malcolm X that would come out a little bit later. You got Boys in Hood. And here I am, like, you know, just fully engaged with this. This is when I begin to have a real a real conversation around thought. And so with Miss Mance's class in the seventh grade and with, you know, this whole set of things happening, I remember writing a paper and saying, I want to be one of three things. I want to be a jazz musician. I want to be an obstetrician gynecologist because I was watching the Cosby show real hard at the time. Yes, and, 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 you know, uh, a different world. Or I want to be a black history professor. Ooh. And the truth of the matter is that I married all three of them. I married, I became a doctor, mm -hmm. um, a history professor. I've studied music, but moving on forward um, in terms of, I mean, you know, we're talking about how I got into the work. Um, I actually tried to shun a lot of that. Uh, as I got older, uh, I really thought that I was going to be a doctor. Uh, 
I, uh, I have an older brother that went to Howard University, and I wasn't I wasn't doing bad in school or anything. Um, but when I was in the tenth grade, he was a freshman, and I had gone up to Washington D.C. Howard University to hang out with my brother, and there was a video by Shy. Uh, I think it was "Baby, I'm Yours," and uh, the young lady who was in the video. Um, it was a couple of young ladies in the video who I just thought were absolutely beautiful. And my brother was like, yeah, I know them. Like, you know, I kind of, you know, we, I, I talked to them on a regular basis. And I was like, they be talking to your country behind, you know, like, like, <laughs> and so my brother was like, I was like, man, this is crazy here at Howard. And he was like, well, yeah, if you just keep doing good in school, like you'll be able to go to college and just hang out and do all this stuff too. And it was that kind of catalyst that really made me say, okay, where I am in Selma is where I am, but I'm trying to get somewhere else. Yeah. And um, I, I, I played a lot of high school football and uh, I ended up playing college football. I got an opportunity to play division one college football. I went to the university of Alabama at Birmingham. And it's while I was learning the ways of Omega sci-fi, I, I go into college to be a medical doctor. Okay. And it was while I was learning, learning the ways of Omega sci-fi. You see how I put that, see how cool <laughs> I, I put that. Yeah. Uh, Right on in, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but but it's one thing to say when I was pledging. You see, can't say it. Is when I was learning the ways of Omega Sci-Fi. Um, I had a I had a kind of a come to Jesus moment, an out of body experience, and I was struggling. I fell on my shoulder my freshman year, and I was struggling with really wanting to do the science of what it took to become a medical doctor. I was like, I can do it, but I'm not interested in it. Like, like it doesn't hold my attention. And one day I felt like the universe, the creator, God, however you want to understand Mm -hmm. how things work, came to me and said, you're supposed to be a historian because you have the gift of discernment. You can see. And what, what was said to me is if you be obedient, you'll go further than anything that you'll ever, that you can ever consider. Yeah. And because I was learning the ways of Omega Sci-Fi, I was humbled in a particular kind of way to where I was willing to really listen. And that was on a, that was on a Friday night. I was watching the movie, A Time to Kill at a movie theater. We were playing, a, getting ready to play a football game. And on that following Monday, I went to see my academic advisor who was an an, an older black man. He was, I didn't know at the time he was a minister, but I knew he was a member of Omega Sci-Fi. And I said to him, I said, Mr. Hurst, he said it was Mr. Milton Hurst. I said, Mr. Hurst, I'm here to change my major. And he says, to what? I said, history and politics. And he says, why? I said, because I said, well, you may not understand this, but um, I feel like God has told me to do this. And he leaned back and he looked at me and he said, young man, he said, God also told you that obedience is better than sacrifice. He confirms wow. what had been presented to me. Yeah. And he says, do you know what that means? And I said, yes, sir, I do. But I want you to tell me what it means. I was humble enough to always, I mean, elders are gifts amongst us. Yeah. And whether you agree or disagree with them, you can always learn from them. And he said that a lot of people can't be obedient. And when they get off the path, they have to sacrifice to get back in. He says, but if you stay on the path, you don't have to do that. You, you cut out the middleman. And on that day, I made a decision that I was going to be a historian, a professional historian to go as far as I can. And I'm still moving forward. And so it's, uh, it's been, it's been crazy. Uh, I did a master's degree at the university of Alabama. Um, 
I studied under a really good scholar. Uh, there was some real, there was some real issues at Alabama, but I studied under a great scholar, a man by the name of Milkar Shabazz. And then I did a PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. But I will tell you all this unequivocally, uh, unequivocally. Um, the greatest launching point that really started my career and positioned to me to be a, a good historian mm-hmm. was at Tuskegee University. It was to be able to engage Tuskegee in a particular kind of way. I didn't go to Tuskegee, but I walked into a situation where the, the students were, were receptive, the university was receptive to what I was doing, and I was able to hone my skills and crafts um, and, and, and work some things out, but it gave me a platform on how I could institutionally understand you know, the Black experience, how I could reach across generations, future and past, and kind of glean and articulate, you know, the popular political sentiments of our people and what we've struggled with. And, and so that's where I am. That's what got me into this work that I do. Absolutely. That's, that's great. Uh, uh, Scott has the next question, but I want to ask a follow-up question real quick, sure. if that's all right. Um, I really love what you said about uh, your academic advisor saying, you know, like, uh, if you get off the beaten path, like sacrifice will get you back on. I think that's really profound and deep and something to kind of noodle on. Mm-hmm. But what I really want to know is you mentioned discernment. And how does that connect with, how do you see discernment in your work as a historian? So, you know, um, the, the, the problem with history oftentimes is that the way in which history is taught K through 12 and even in college is a false sense of what the actual field of history is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, and, and the strange part, the hard thing about being a historian, a professional historian, is that People think that it's a job of passion. They think that, you know, anybody can just do it because all you do is you learn some facts and you regurgitate them. It's the furthest thing from the truth. The key to history is history is investigation. So mm-hmm. what it is, and this is how I, I, I have to engage my students. If I walk into a classroom and when I get into the classroom, the 30 students in the classroom, one student has a bloody right hand and one student has a bloody mouth and two teeth are on the floor. I have to piece together what happened yeah. based on facts. And so what I also have to do is I have to interview every student that was in the room from the perspective of where they were sitting. And then I have to kind of take an analysis of someone has a bloody hand, someone's missing two teeth and a bloody mouth. I have to recreate the story based on facts. And so the trick is the investigative work. But the problem with, with African-American history, and this is why I'm a historian trained in political science, sociology, and economics, is that oftentimes our history is not in an archive. Yeah. So there are no, there are no facts to kind of stitch things through. So you have to be able to extrapolate the narrative from other methods. Methods yeah. like in Alabama, you had three million black folk. In, let's just say in the state of Alabama in 1870, Alabama was 51% black. Let's just say that there were Three million people in the state of Alabama. I'm just making this up. Three million people in the state of Alabama, and 1.6 million were black people. That's in 1860. Mm-hmm. But in 1890, you have 3,500 people in the state of Alabama, but now only 28 percent are black people. What that means is black folks left. Mm-hmm. You gotta then be able to piece together. Well, why would they leave? What's going on? What are the policies coming from the state? What are the policies coming from the federal government? What mm-hmm. has made life so hostile? 
Where did these people go? Then you'll see an overwhelming presence in Detroit. You'll see an overwhelming presence in Ohio. What that's what I'm saying is that we have to be able to piece it together. And my goal is I have to be able to discern the sentiments of people as to what they were feeling. I, I, I'm the kind of person I can move in the world. I can feel the hurt and pain. I can also feel the joy. Mm-hmm. I can kind of, sometimes I can move through time and I can capture the feeling and emotions of ancestors and I can write it and I can write it in a way to where when people read it, they can feel it and they can say, I now understand. So that's where discernment is. Yeah, And, I, and then the thing about the work that I do because of discernment, is that when I made the decision to be a historian, there are three things that I must always do. The first is I must always tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Hey, the truth of the matter is that black history is not warm and fuzzy. It's a history of murder. It's a history of sexual assault. It's a history of violence. It's a history of trauma. But we're still here. So it is a history of resilience. Yeah. The second thing is that I must always be loyal to my people and the land that they stand on. I am a black southerner. I am thick and thin through and through black southern. And proud of that. And I'm and I stand on the land and I can that's the beautiful thing about Tuskegee is that the if you are able to discern, it smacks you in your face when you when you enter the hallowed grounds of the university because of the the girth of experience there. And it's across, it's in a lot of you can go into cemeteries and fill it. You can go in, in Selma, Alabama, the tarrying of the black folk there. I mean, they have struggled there. Mm-hmm. The last thing that I must do, though, is I must always provide a solution. We can talk about the problems, but how do we move forward? And so when we talk about the discernment is I have to be able to discern, tease out and 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 grab that experience. I can articulate it as an empath and then present it to the world to help them understand the struggle of our people, the struggle and resilience and the resistance of our people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, speaking of narrative, I read The Warmth of Other Suns last year. Oh, yeah, my good friend Isabel Wilkerson. It was such a good read, and I learned so much. And it was really, mm-hmm. to me, I was trying to understand just this idea of freedom, right? And just kind of find books about what, what choices people make towards freedom mm-hmm. and how that looks right. like and how it looked like for our ancestors. And that was just yeah. a really eye-opening. Well, well, to, say, to say this to you, history is a weapon for freedom. And that's what I use it for. I, I you know, I um, I got a text from one of my profites, my chapter profites, about twenty minutes before we started, and it was a really, really strong text because I'm I'm still in the middle of developing who I am and what I'm going to be. So I'm still moving towards whatever that the prophecy was given to me twenty five years ago in nineteen ninety six. I'm still moving towards that. Yeah. But people see things and they'll say, you know, you're strong, you're vibrant, and sometimes I don't feel that way. But hey, you know, um, I'm trying every day I wake up, though, with with a uh, with a warm heart and spirit to try to get at it and 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 make life better for my people, my, my family. And if I feel like if I take care of my family in regards to that, it'll trickle out into the rest of the community. And so. So, yeah. So, you know, we it, it's a tough thing, but we're still here. Yeah. And so, you know, I. Uh, and it, uh, this is a good segue into the next part of, of what uh, I really want to talk about. And um, I think the way that you termed it was was learning the ways of, of Omega Sci-Fi, right? And we both have had that experience. And uh, the one one of the things that the love haze is about is is 
like understanding that there will always be some challenges that you'll face. Yeah. And um, with all of us, you know, being D9, we understand that we and we've always been taught that the work starts after you. Yep. Cross, yes, that's right. right. That's right. And so I guess the next question is more about like, what is the haze of this work yeah. for you? You know, what is what is the difficulty that you find yourself coming up against, especially with trying to get your, your points across, especially to a younger generation? I think you do a really unique job of, of doing that and kind of bringing the cool back to history and helping us to understand yeah. in the way that you deliver information. So what's the haze for you? Hey, this is a great, a great question. You know, the haze is always real. You know, the haze is upon us. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, this love haze piece y'all got going on. I mean, it's it's, it's brilliantly thought out. Now, I'm, I'm, that that love haze is 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 a beautiful kind of market for you all. But yeah. I, I want to tell y'all something. You know, um, humility and discretion is a is a real is a real thing. So there's another part of this story about before that I haven't told you all that will always keep me humble, regardless of whether people think I'm humble or not. I'm what I'm about to tell you all will always keep me humble. I, I am a humble person, but I do have to be strong and forceful sometimes in public. So, you know, you go out and you do a talk and people want to feel good with the history, but that history is hurting our people. Mm-hmm. And, and I cannot stand by and let my people be hurt. Like I cannot have you all be fooled, but this is the thing. When I graduated from college, 1999, um, I worked at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. And I was able to, I studied, I had gone to the University of Alabama to do a master's degree because I was going to work with this really brilliant scholar by the name of Emil Karshabaz. And um, I can't say that the University of Alabama was all good to me, in terms of some things, but Shabazz was an excellent scholar. And I remember when I when they asked me what I was going to write a master's thesis on, and this is the larger department, mm-hmm. um, they wanted me to write a master's thesis on, quote unquote, what it meant to be a black football player who was able to make it in academia without a father. Wow. Now, this is the problem. My father was probably is probably the most stable force in my life. And so, and so what I was saying when they when they came to me with this, I was like, well, what makes you think I didn't grow up without a father? And the, the sentiment was as well, you know, most black people don't have a father. And it offended me. And I was like, yeah, I'm not writing a master's thesis on what it means to be a football player that made it in academia. I was like, that's trite. That's that's whatever. Yeah. And so they said, well, what else can you what else? could you possibly write about? Like they were being funny. Like, well, what else do you know how to write about? Like besides sports. And what I said to him is I said, I know everything there is to know about the dirty South. Mm. And I wrote a master's thesis called what y'all really know about the dirty South working towards a black Southern aesthetic and hip hop. First time it had ever been written in a, in an academic environment like that. And that was in 2001. Mm-hmm. The thing about it is, and what I was trying to articulate, I, I, I shudder to read it right now because it's so bad, so poorly written. <laughs> um, but what I was articulating is that when you're black, and the reason that Southern music, particularly coming out of, you know, from East Texas all the way to, to Georgia, the reason it, and it had such a sound was because they could remember the injustices of the ancestors. Mm. Okay, so we're talking about... You know, I got a pocket full of stones. I mean, it's a reason that UGK is all my stuff in that crack rock is because 
of post-industrial conditioning Reaganomics. You know, you're talking about eight ball and MJG and slab, right? And I mean, like that's the Mississippi Delta and you're talking about poverty. So you, and then when, when outcasts and goody mob start coming, you, you, you get a sense of this. So what happens is um, the white academics were like, oh, this is so great. And Amilcar Shabazz pulled me to the side and he said, what you wrote was sexy, but it has no teeth. Mm. He said, what are you going to do to help change the conditions of our people? And, and so I, I didn't like what he said, but I knew what he was saying was true. Yeah. And I struggled into getting into graduate to a PhD program. That's how I ended up at Tuskegee. So what happened is, is I had applied to seven PhD programs and was rejected by all of them. Wow. But God had given me this, 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 this commission. God had said, this is what you're going to do. So I had gone to an Al Green concert and there was a, there was a, um, a cute young lady who was at Alabama, you know, and um, I met her dad and her mom and dad at this Al Green concert and, and her dad was like, you know, young man, I like you. Um, he was like, I think you're, I think you're going places. He says, if you don't go to graduate school, why don't you come to Tuskegee and work for me? And I was like, well, I don't know because you know, at that point in time, I didn't know what was going to happen in my life. I wasn't trying to make no commitments or do anything that was. Right. Really <laughs> but I didn't have a job, and so I remember sending him my resume, and um, on a on a Sunday on a Monday and on Wednesday, he calls me and says, I want you to come down here tonight to interview for this job. And when I got to Tuskegee for the interview, it wasn't an interview. He was like, this is what you will be doing. <laughs> he said, if you work for me for two years, he said, you will have to fight the PhD programs off of you. Mm. I went and I worked there for two years, two of the best years of my life. And in the process I began to kind of pay attention to, to their fi family dynamics. Well, I ended up marrying his daughter. <laughs> so that man was Dr. William Lester. Hey. And what Tuskegee allowed for me to do, I'm 25 years old teaching on a college campus. And I realized that there were things that I always had to do. Like I couldn't be out here hanky-pankying. I, you know, I had to be a professional at 25. I had to take the work seriously. I had to separate work even hanging out with the bros on the yard. I mean, I was cool with the bros and I would go on the stone and kick it. But then I was like, dog, I can't, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I ain't coming. Y'all got some boys out. I don't even know nobody's name. Right. <laughs> but after working there for two years, I'd applied to 15 programs. I got into all of the programs with funding. And the reason I went to Illinois is they offered me seven years of funding, but they had the top scholars in the world. So I went from being rejected to getting into one of the top PhD programs. And when I got into the top PhD program, and this is where the haze comes in, I thought that a lot of academics were acting with all of the weirdness and stuff. <laughs> and I got up to Illinois and I'm a down South cat. I'm like a real down South cat who, I mean, I don't have gold teeth, but that's normal. I know people with gold teeth. I, you know, I, I know people who in the streets doing stuff who are cool. I know bootleggers and number runners. Um, <laughs> I know chipping pimps and preachers. I know all of them. But when I got there, you know, they were talking about this black experience that was not very real to me. Uh. And because of their personalities, I mean, I think you all could tell I'm not a nerd. Like I'm a, I'm like a real dude, like a, like a 
die. And I don't want to use no bad language in here. <laughs> but what happened is, is I realized that if I were, I had moved from Tuskegee, Alabama to Champaign, Illinois, it's about 800 miles. I said, if I'm going to go back down south with something, I have to change how history is going to be told. And I had to remember the people like Miss Maddie, who used to be the lady who used to keep me when I was before I started kindergarten. I could read before I started kindergarten. My mom taught us to read. My mother's school teacher she taught us to read. Who and Miss Maddie couldn't read. And I remember, I remember one time I got a spanking as a kid because Miss Maddie asked me to read something. And I said, I don't want to read, Miss Maddie. Why don't you read it? And she looked at me and my mother spanked me. And I was sitting in a classroom in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, reading about black education, studying under Dr. James Anderson, when it hit me with that Miss Maddie couldn't read, mm. I carry Miss Maddie. Yeah. Or, or, or there was a wine on Selma, Alabama, and I won't call his name because um, he, he's still alive and his, his children are still alive and they're close friends, but he, he was a painter. He painted houses, but he would get drunk. And he would walk through the streets and he would be drunk, but I knew he would never hurt anybody. Yeah. And I remember one time playing soccer and this drunk black man stumbles across the field. And all the white kids ran off and were like, oh my God, it's a monster. But I knew who it was and I ran up to him and I said, hey, how you doing, Mr. So-and-so, so-and-so? He said, hey, boy, what you doing? And I said, I'm all right. And the white kids said, how are you? How do you know that man? I said, that's Mr. So-and-so. He good people. He just drink a lot of liquor. What I'm saying is that I bring all of them yeah. with me when I do this work. Mm-hmm. And so I, I realized that I had to be able to present history in a different kind of way. And so for the longest, the, the haze was, is that I knew that I had something powerful to say, but in the academic world, you have to write books. Yeah. You have to write articles and you have to get grants. Mm-hmm. And so the, the book writing process was tumultuous. And um, so, but when everything popped off, the book dropped, the Maynard Jackson documentary dropped at the same time. Yeah. Wow, nice. And, mm-hmm. and then um, Mary Keisha Lance Bottoms was in a dog fight with Mary Norwood, where Mary Norwood would have been the first white mayor. And the book is the playbook to all of that. And so everything happened at once. And so what the haze has been is to let the creator and time work these things out because I was, up a, yeah, I was running up a, yeah, I was running up and, and, and then another aspect of the haze is the fame of it all. I mean, I'm still, you know, Maurice Hobson. I'm still, I mean, I'm just Mo Hobson. I'm, you know, Cindy's husband and William's dad and I'm Marvin and Joyce's third boy, you, you know, like I'm just a yeah. regular person. But people will see me on a documentary and because I work at a public university, you can Google my name and get all my information and they will bombard me with calls, you know, and people want everything from you for free. I mean, and and it's just kind of like, is it really worth my time? Are you the kind of caliber person that I want to put my name behind? That's been a haze. But the biggest haze has been really um, meeting uh, and, and Scott, you'll understand this, you know, Meeting triumph and disaster and treating those two imposters just the same. Absolutely. I um in the process of me doing this work, uh, I, I was grateful and honored that my father was able to see me get a PhD and land jobs. And I, I lost him five five years, three months ago. Mm. And um he he was really kind of the you know a, a rock. 
for for me and my particular growth because um, I'm I was the kind of kid I I wasn't fearful of anything and so he taught me how to how cooler heads prevail and how to be a man in particular ways and whatever whatnot. Um, but in the process, so in the process of that, my wife and I had a baby. Son was born at 28 weeks. He was one pound ten ounces, mm. and um, but he's he's fine. He, yeah. He's great. Um, and then my father was diagnosed with cancer two weeks later. So I was going from Northside Hospital to Alabama to check on my dad. And the tenure clock was still going. So I had to write that book. There was no time for me to stop and really gather myself. And I got angry about that. But the I'm, a, I'm an old football player. Instead of it being anger, what I did is I followed up all of that anger and I put it in that book. And if you've read the book, that's why the book reads the way it does. There are people who say, I can tell that he is, he is, he is for real black and Southern. Like he, yeah. he might smack you in the mouth if he sees you right? Yeah. because of how he's able to do it. But again, you know, our people all, all across the nation, all across this world are struggling and fighting and I'll be damned yeah. if we don't sit back and let it happen. So I'm a weapon. So I, I had to foster all of that. So the, the haze is kind of dealing with this kind of new the, the new outward facing aspect of my name and face, but knowing who I really am and how the world perceives you as this when over here I'm this. Yeah. And so that's been a haze and, you know, really taking care of my time, really making sure that I am with my family. Um, I, I'll say this, you know, as much heartbreak as COVID has brought us, um, I've been able to be at home and spend a lot of time with my family, which is, is, is invaluable to me. And so, um, so, so that's, that's the haze. The haze is also when you tell the truth, you make enemies. I'm and I'm here to tell you, I, I, you know, hey, I, I love this city, Scott. I, I think about every day. I think about a post that you posted on Facebook probably ten years ago. You talked about how you were like, I go to Alabama, I stay for twenty four hours, and you say I come on back. You say because uh, you said something like they ain't gonna take my Georgia driver's license while I'm <laughs> <laughs> I might my driver's license. <laughs> yeah, but. I, and what I'm what you was what I felt like you were saying is that you you love the city and what it provides. Mm-hmm. It, it it provides a, a a particular lens, but you're close enough to get home. Home is still good to you. Absolutely. But like there's this idea that if you love something, you can't be critical of it. And the thing about it is, I feel like if I truly love something, that I must be critical of it. You absolutely yeah. will. I'm I'm critical of my own self. Yeah. I tell my wife all the time. My wife is always honest with me. That's that's why we work well together. She's always going to be honest, and she is um, she's 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 a good honest. She's not rude or anything, but she tells me all the time, "You your hardest critic, Marty's." Yeah, and that's the thing about it is, I love I, I, my I lost a, my father. I've lost an older brother. I love them with everything I have, but I can still say, you know, there were some things I didn't like that they did, but did that mean that I don't love them? When you, when I had that honest conversation about Atlanta, the legend of the black method, there's truth and there's embellishment. We gotta, we gotta divide what is what and look at what things are. And when we pay attention to what's going on, you know, this city has more, you know, homeless populations, you know, predatory lending practices, you know, the militarization of the police, you know, the school to prison pipeline. I mean, we, we had a generation of black and brown children who were failed with a cheating scandal. Those are our children. 
When we start talking about, you know, the red dogs and the murders and all, I mean, the Atlanta child murders where they're leaving black children out in fields. We got to heal from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's this history that I'm doing is for healing. And when you're trying to make sure that people are whole, mm-hmm. you can't you can't shy away from it. And I this is what I hope to God for as a parent with my son. I'm always honest with him because and, and my father used to say this. The Bible talks about this, that um, a man with children, if he is if he is right to his children that they'll one day become friends. That's the prince that is promised. What I'm saying is when it is all said and done, and if God allows me to see my son become a man, what he'll always know is my dad was always honest and he always looked out for my best interest. Even if I didn't agree, I know that I can trust him. I know that I respect him. That's what you want. That's who I am. I, I try to do this history and have these hard conversations so that we can always be prepared to see the wiles of the devil coming. Mm-hmm. But that's the haze. <laughs> I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I told uh, you, we're we going to find our groove up in here now. <laughs> we, it, consider it found, sir. Like the, the, we talk often about both and. So what just has been resonating with me since you said it is the idea of, you know, the highs and the lows simultaneously and, and taking that energy and really using it for, uh, you know, something more productive. Um, but even it, it's so timely, like even that sentiment is timely for me um, with everything that's gone on last week and carrying it into this yes. week, um, you know, politically and still having to be productive. And that just that one day of January the 6th, like waking up, being in Atlanta, being proud to, you know, have been an HBCU grad and to have marched and donated and voted Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. like done all of these things and just really a part of that celebration to then hours later the shit show (laughs) that was and and then trying to like stay productive and and keep moving in our in our work lives and 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 what we have going on so just that feeling of like you know uh i am elated i am frustrated i am all of these things and for Mm -hmm. me this week i've been like what am i doing with all of this this energy. And then mm-hmm. to couple that, mm-hmm. and I'm, I think I'm getting a little bit off topic, but it is what it is. I'm going to just go with it. Being in a pandemic and not having those, those outlets that I usually have, just maybe like find somewhere to go dance it out or, mm-hmm. you know, and so I think some of it has been us putting that energy into this work, into these conversations. But I mean, that just really hit home for me. Like I really, really, really resonate with that haze for sure. Well, I, I'm going to tell you something about like last week. I knew it was coming. I study history. History by nature is cyclical. If you study the past, funny story. All my life, my mother's called me a prophet. Mm. And I resisted it. And I resisted it for a reason. My my mother is churchy. And you're trying to make me be a preacher. And I know for a fact that I have not been called to be a preacher. A minister in some different way. I mean, you know, the whole goal is you want people to see God in what you're doing and that, you know, hopefully it can inspire them to try to be closer to how they see the spirit world, you know. But I'm God and I have had that conversation. That ain't what I'm supposed to do. But I will tell you this. Um, In 2016, October 27, 2016. 
I was on a panel with Henry Louis Gates at Georgia Public Broadcast. And this is before the book and everything. I was on a panel. It was myself, a couple other professors. And it was really talking about the Obama years. And someone says, well, who in this room believes that Donald Trump can be president of the United States? And I raised my hand. I'm the only person raised my hand. It's standing room only in this studio. And it, the studio had like 200 seats in it. I got boos and hisses. Folks talked crazy. And what I, what my answer was is that history by nature is cyclical. Whenever you see black people get political gains, you always see this clapback, this white lash. Okay. And, 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 and this clapback. I mean, I got booed and hissed and I opened up my email. Like I said, I work at a public university. I had crazy folks talking like, you know, you're the scum of the earth because you see race. A couple of weeks later, um, Donald Trump becomes president. Yeah. Or I don't know if he steals or the Russians do. I don't know what happens. <laughs> the day after the, the election, I you can Google this online. There is a, if you Google is Atlanta still the black Mecca? You can see me on a forum with Andrea Young, Andrew Young's daughter, and the president, uh, the CEO of the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, Georgia, uh, and a couple of other people where we're really having this kind of debate. And later on that week, it was Achievement Week. I had gone to Oklahoma to do an Achievement Week talk and so I'm hanging out with the bros, two o'clock in the morning in, in uh, Lawton, Oklahoma, at Fort Steel, the Boom Boom Cues. And so we're eating in IHOP. And this old Native American, clearly Native American, I mean, we're in Oklahoma, walks in. He has a hospital band on his arm. And he looks at us. He just comes and sits next to me. And he says, I want what it is that you got on your plate. So I looked at him. I knew what time it was. I mean, I, I can discern. Um, he just got out of the hospital. He struggled with alcoholism. But he's a human being. So I was like, well, you just order it and you tell him to put it on my bill. So I go back to talking to the bros and we're talking about politics. And that old Native American, he says to me, he says, young man, what nation are you from? I said, well, my grandmother is Huma of the Muskegee Nation. He says, I'm Comanche, we are like cousins. And he looks at the brothers and he says this to him, he says, this man is a prophet. Mm. He says, listen to everything he says. When I, later on that, the, the next day when I woke up, I was checking my work email and I had a long email from some man I don't know who was probably white. And he, what he wrote is he says, I called you out your name when you made that statement at Georgia Public Broadcast, he said, I booted his, he says, but clearly you're able to see things that other people can't. Yeah. He said, it's like you're a prophet. I immediately had to call my mother and apologize yes, and say, my, your understanding of prophecy may be different than mine. I said, but my gift is that because I can see the past, I can kind of predict what will happen in the future. Yeah. We got a lot more tarrying to do before things get more settled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now I, I do believe that we will be protected. But the interesting thing about this is this one, it ain't, it ain't got nothing to do with us. This is 
other folks fighting amongst themselves. See, now yep. they showing they're showing the world who they are, mm-hmm. and it has nothing to do with us. And so, with that being said, um, we're gonna we're gonna be all right. Yeah. But you know, it's good to be able to do some target practicing, and you know, have your ammunition up and running. Not that you don't have to use it and be thinking about things, because I tell you what, you know, if they show up down here in South Dakota where I live. <laughs> There's gonna be some, you know, uh, weeping and gnashing of the teeth. So, yes. <laughs> so, so what I'm okay. saying is that we have to figure out ways to handle these things that we see on, on TV. Yeah, mm-hmm. you were about to say something. Did you? Did I, you? I, I? I think I was just going to, you know, jump into the fact that I think that that we all are in some ways impacted when, when you have purpose work that you're doing. You can't help but be impacted by those things that you know impact your people. Yeah. Oh yeah. And being an empath myself, being a person who you know works for the people and does therapy and that kind of stuff every day. Not only the way that things jump on my spirit and how they make me feel, knowing that I have to go and have to deal with these other group of people who are going to receive that in a different way on top of all the other traumas that they have. That's right. And a lot of our purpose work is tied into that work and that spirit and that heart that we have for our people, right? And for those people that we're trying to help get to their healing work. So we can be actively doing our own healing while we're trying to help heal other people. And I think that we're all trying to find oh, yes, sir. a balance, you know, of trying to make sure that that we're our best selves so we can give, you know, the best of ourselves to others to help with that healing work. But we're also doing that work individually ourselves as, as things are happening. Yeah. Like life is actively happening to That's us right. while we're doing our, our purpose work. Yeah. And we can either choose to to be stifled by that and say, I'm just not going to move. Right. Some of those old gospel songs is, you know, say, just, just be still. Yeah. But I don't, in the environment that we're in and, and with what we're seeing happen to our people, many of us can't afford to be still. We got to keep moving. We got to find a way to take care of ourselves, but we also got to keep moving towards this purpose work and what we have to be doing. But but we have to, you know, this is one of the things they talk about when we talk about spirituality. Um, You have to get to know the creator and the ancestors on your own terms, Mm -hmm. meaning what worked then doesn't work now. Mm -hmm. Everything is about time and place. There's a time to be still. But then there's also a time for for warfare. And so, like, for me, I remember it's funny that you said being our best selves. And and and, and Scott, I, I've been very familiar with your work for a very long time. I mean, you know, the, the therapy work. And I've always appreciated you. And I've always appreciated you w- being willing to have the conversation about how, like, not only black folk, but black men need to really kind of uh, do therapy for self-help just to talk it out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um. A several about three months ago, um, I was telling my wife one of the things that that COVID did to me was it did not allow for me to go to the gym, and I am a gym rat. That is my sanctimony. That's my haven. I can go in there for an hour, pound it out, and it gives me the f- the fluid mindset to be able to move through anything that office during the day. Mm-hmm. But along with my wife was anti me getting anything, any gym equipment. I just straight up told her, I said, I am not my best self if I can't work out. And so what she did is she allowed for me to buy that. It it has changed my whole environment. Yeah. And and so mind, body and spirit, we have to work that out. But we as 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 a people, 
And I, you know, I, I, if I could just ask you a question, like, so how do you take on other people's burdens? You hear their innermost dark thoughts. And so how do you, how are you able to cleanse yourself of some of the things that are hurt that needs to be cleansed? I mean, it allows for you to think through things because when you understand how dark humanity can be, it's, it's, it's quite upsetting and scary. Yeah. So, so for me, I, I think um, a, a part of it is knowing that, you know, that, that I'm, I'm only the, the vessel and only a sounding board, if will. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't, I don't have to absorb that. Yeah. And early in my career, I used to really absorb, you know, people's problems and, and be so in, invested. So you become so invested in people's healing and more invested than them. Then you become what's called enmeshed. And when you're you're not helping anybody, right? You're, you're only trying to carry some of that burden for them, which it, I can't do for you, because yeah. then that doesn't help you find your purpose work. If, if I do the work for you, uh, number one, you ain't gonna stick to it. Yeah, you know? you're not gonna stick to a solution that you didn't help come up with. That's right. right? Even when I develop treatment plans for for my folk or whatever, we're developing a treatment plan. Uh, I'm only doing the writing. I'm doing the writing based on what you said that you want to work on. Mm. And so all of our stories have to be about what we want to work on. It's just my part of the work is, is maybe the therapy part that helps you get to the solution. Your part of the work may be, you know, understanding the history behind what you're feeling and helping these folks understand that you're not alone. Like we've all experienced experienced that our perspectives may be a little bit different. The way that we saw it may be a little bit different, much like the way you said earlier, you know, it's just the way that you saw it, the way that you experienced is unique to you. And mm-hmm. we all have our own work to get through that. But not only just healing, not just getting to the point of surviving that thing, but getting on the other side of it. So then you can get to your purpose work. Then you can do what you're supposed to be doing for your community because your story, my story, your story, those are all stories that need to be told, right? Yeah. They need to be documented. They yeah. need to be a mm-hmm. part of history so that folks can move forward. Because one of the things that happened for me, I thought I was a weirdo. When I started experience experiencing the world and experiencing problems, I didn't have a point of reference, right? I didn't I didn't see that anybody else had gone through that, and so my commitment to healing and to the therapy work that I do is because I want folks to know that they're not alone. There are many people out there that are experiencing the same thing that you're experiencing, and it's our responsibility to share the information so that people know. Okay, I'm 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 only facing what other men have met. That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm only going through this point in, in life that someone else has experienced. And we need to be able to tell we got to break this tough exterior and be able to tell people like, yeah, I went through that period of life, too. This is how I handle it. Mm-hmm. You may handle it in the same way, but this is some reference for you. you. You may use that to create your own recipe to get through whatever it is that you need to get through. And it's just not bringing that stuff with me. Right. I'm going to be a sounding board for you and I'm going to give you some suggestions on what you can do to get to your healing and be healing my own stuff all in between. Share those experiences with you and be a conduit to help you find, you know, your way through it. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. That's this is some really uh, interesting conversation. I want to get it back to your work uh, Mo, with. all of the insights, you know, as a historian and, and as you were saying, you know, just you, you foresaw last week, um, you were able to speak on it. 
it reminded me of we had a within our organization where I work. We had I'm, I was trying to find the gentleman's name. Someone from the Smithsonian uh, Museum in D.C. African American Museum does sports. I'm uh, calling John Damian Thomas. That could be his name. He came and spoke with us at one point. Um, I'm sure you're right because you would know better than I do. Well, Damien, uh, Damien was a professor of mine at Illinois, and he ended up going to the National Museum of African American History. Okay. Oh. That has to be him. He, yeah. he spoke and was really, you know, talking about all of the work that he's done. And one of the questions that was posed to him was, like, are you not depressed by everything that you see? Like, all of this history that you see every day? And his response was, I will never forget his response. He said, I, I am empowered by the knowing of it. Like, I, I he said it's cyclical. Mm -hmm. History repeats itself. I, I can study this information and I am empowered to know what is to come. Um, so that really reminded me a lot of, of, you know, kind of what you were just mentioning about, you know, this. I thought it's not, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, no, it's uh, I'm built for this. Like, yeah. see, that's a part of obedience and sacrifice. Like when 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 the universe gives you a word, you are built for it. And, and and I'm saying it like this, and and I mean this in all respect because I don't want anybody to take this out of, out, out of context, but it is what it is. I am built for warfare. I was built for war. Yeah. Uh, I am grateful and honored to the creator and the ancestors for giving me this because had I not had a way to channel this kind of energy, I could be the wrong kind of individual. Um. You, you know how uh, you may watch some old kind of stuff and they say you got to use your powers for good. I, I'm glad that I have an opportunity to use my powers for good because there is a dark side to this. But mm -hmm. I mean, I study lynching. We study sexual assault and rape. We study injustices. And I, I will tell you this, you know, an eye opening experience and being a historian is when it, when you're able to see your own people, when you, like your grandparents, when you're able to see them in the archive. See, you, you come into this world and you just assume that mom and dad, uh, mom and dad and big mama and, you know, big daddy and granddaddy and uncle pop. You, 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 you just assume that they just who they are. And, you know, so who's to say uncle pop used to stay in the back room at big mama's house because uncle pop, you know, he would kind of touch, you know, how you know, you know how it goes. Yeah. But when you really begin to understand why Uncle Pop is kind of touched is because Uncle Pop went to Vietnam and was drafted. He was the only ch male child should not have been drafted. And he got over there. He was so scared. He started doing heroin. Yeah. And it messed him up. And Uncle Pop was good. People had all the potential in the world. But then Uncle Pop stays in the back room. When you're able to understand how the policies of this government have been manipulated to harm and hurt our people, you know, in the scripture where it talks about how the devil, uh, God will restore uh, sevenfold what Satan has taken from us. Mm -hmm. I'm here to get all of it. Yes. That's who I am. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that I am built for warfare. I am. Um, whenever I do any history talk, I've, I've done. I did. I, I have three more Martin Luther King speeches to do before the holiday. Mm. So, so I'm on a lecture circuit, but it's a cold. <laughs> <Right. laughs> um, but I always read this statement that I wrote called "History is a Weapon," and I'm I don't straight up say this, but this is for warfare. Mm. 
And the one thing about a, a the true essence of a true warrior is that you seek all aspects of peace first, because when it is time to go to war, you can let it all hang out. I'm built for this. I can study this stuff from 50,000 feet and not feel any, I can, I can see it and see how it felt. Yeah. But then what happens to me is I take that thing back and I be like, devil, you about to pay. And I'm going to tell you something. I played high school football under uh, All-American for Bear Bryant by the name of Woodrow Lowe's from Phoenix City, Alabama. He was a three-time All-American. He was best football coaches I've ever met. Good man. But he was the meanest coach I'd ever met. And I remember he used to have a saying and he would get right up in your face and before the game and he would say, somebody's ass got to pay. <laughs> when I get that history and I start learning, somebody's ass got to pay. Now, right? What that also means, though, is that I have to have an out of body experience with it because I can't absorb. Because there is a conversation around epigenetics, you know, the passing of trauma genetically. Yeah. It could, you know. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that um, I'm. I've been given the tools to be able to read something, see how horrifying it is and still not let it impact me. And I'll tell you all this, um, that work I did on the Atlanta child murder. So the Atlanta child murder, the the HBO docuseries is based on chapter three of my book. Uh, I was a producer for it, for it in the whole nine. And um, I remember the Atlanta child murders. It was fearful. Uh, I was actually supposed to grow up here in Atlanta. My father was offered a, a big job at Morehouse School of Medicine when it first started. And he took the job in Selma because, and later on, he says, I didn't take the job because they were killing black kids and nothing was being done. I have older brothers. And so um, we would, we, we could, we could only go trick or treating at the mall. Like you couldn't just like randomly walk through the neighborhood because of the Atlanta child murder. And we're in Alabama. But I'm saying all that to say this, you know, what I knew that was more, what I knew was more support based then the fear of the Atlanta child murders is I knew that my family loved me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even with my son, our parent in this regard, one day I'm going to have to have that hard conversation with him about race and racism and all kinds of different things and whatever, whatnot. But he, what he needs to know is that I love him. My, the love that I have for him is bigger than any threat that can come at him. And that's where I lean in. And so while I can study this trauma, I know that I'm loved. I know that I'm a part of a community that loves me back. And that's the saving grace for me. So I am, um, I'm not a drab kind of guy. I'm not a dark kind of guy, you know, personally. But when it comes to this history, it's like I become an incredible hope. I, I turn green and beat the hell out of something. And then I come back to and my clothes are tattered and I'm just regular. <laughs> so, so yeah. That's, good stuff. Though. That is good stuff. All right. Some of these questions that we had, I think, have been kind of answered, answered mm-hmm. as we've had a conversation. So uh, I think two more we want to do probably like about purpose, um, advice, and then how mm-hmm. we can help. So a couple more. Um, so we we'll also want to be respectful of your time. What do you what are your thoughts on purpose for everyone? Like, do you believe everybody has a purpose? And if so, like, what are some indicators that somebody is doing their purpose work? Because everyone we've learned is is may not have as much of a spiritual connection as we might all have, and 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 know what the nudgings from mm-hmm. you know uh, spirit are. So what? How can what do you think? So 
Yes, I, I, I think that everyone does have a purpose. Um, and the purpose, this is the simple way to figure out what your purpose is. The purpose is what could you do that you don't have to get paid to do? You you naturally know how to do. Yep. Mm-hmm. So if you like to sleep a whole lot, then maybe you need to design mattresses. or maybe you need to come up with some kind of app that i mean what i'm saying is that if you if you naturally like to be outside you you have to figure out what 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 works for you and again you know that goes back to my personality i told you i'm a heat seeker i've always given attention to what is given attention to me i'm a middle child like i'm a cruiser when it comes to that Mm -hmm. um another thing about about you know purpose as well. The way in which you know that you're doing it is that in, in many ways, it's it's really how you navigate or understand the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, let me say it like this. So like historically, I, one of the things I do, um, I'm an outdoorsman. I love to be outdoors. And, um, you know, it's, it, here in Atlanta, you know, sometimes you think you're in the city, but you can go, I live on a river. And you could just ride the river trails and you see deer and you see snakes and you just see all of this pristine stuff. But sometimes I'll just stop and I'll ask myself, who are the people who inhabited this? What are the experiences on this ground? What blood is in this soil? And I'm talking about, I'm not asking because I'm a historian. It's a part of my self-awareness of where I am. Yeah. Now, so what I'm saying is that my self-awareness in this world transmits into history. Yeah. And the most important thing for somebody who's warlike me is to always be self-aware. Like you got to always know what situation you're in. So it, what I'm saying is that I naturally am the kind of inquisitive person to try to figure these things out. And I've been able to use it to become, to use it as my professional gift, but also how the world will know me. And I would, I'll tell you this, um, I, um, I'm on the committee to write the new official Omega Sci-Fi history book. And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been somewhat of a task and I'll, I'll leave it at that. But I remember I I had to tell some of the brothers, they were like, well, you know, we need to know if you're going to be committed to this and whatever, whatnot. And, and it, it, Almost ruffled my feathers, but I had to again think about my my, my father, who would always say, "Cooler heads prevail." And I, this is what I told him: I said, "I crossed Omega Sapphire on November fourteenth, nineteen ninety six, and I said I, I never told my father that I was pledged. And I played college ball. My dad would come up to games, and when I was uh, being initiated, you couldn't cut your hair, and uh, so I had this like chia pet kind of afro and beard and all kind of stuff, and playing on the football team. My dad was like, "Why are you out here looking like a homeless man?" <laughs> when I after I crossed I called him and I said dad and he was coming up to a football game and I said dad I just want you to know I became a member of Omega Sci-Fi last night and he said well that's great son he says but I want you to know something he said there are 1.3 billion people in China that have no idea what Omega Sci-Fi is he said don't lose yourself in that I'm telling you all this because since May or since March of 2020, I have been on TV, national and international TV, 37 times. Wow. 
And I'm saying this to you because when the brothers were saying, well, we need to know if you're committed to this, I had to tell them the failure of, I said, the failure of your communication between you and I is that you only see me as your frat brother. Yeah. I said, the world sees me as a renowned historian. So the, the world knows me as that. You, mm-hmm. you are the one being narrow. What I'm saying is that when you are obedient, the world will know you for your work. Come on, Amen. your gift will make room for you. Yeah, it, it, yeah your, you will. It, your gift will make room for you. Or as the old people say, there is room at the top. But you gotta commit to it, mm-hmm. and you have to be prepared for it. You have to study it. You have to study to show yourself approved. And when you know to know is to have confidence. You can stand in front of the redhead devil himself and not back down because, as I stated before, if you tell the truth, you don't have to tell a lie. Mm-hmm. That's 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 the thing about that purpose is whatever it is that you're supposed to do, you can do it. Whether hell and brimstone is, is wh- whether they got guns pointed at you or not, you can still do it because it's technique. Mm-hmm. You have perfected the technique because it's intrinsic. And so, you know, that, that's where I am on that. Yeah. Good stuff. Preach, sir. So you, you done gave us uh, a Whole full sermon. Full sermon. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I ain't no preacher, though. I ain't no preacher. <laughs> Brother, you know, I always appreciate our conversation. Man, we'll be sitting in the middle of homecoming having full on. Uh, I'm talking about eating good cakes, bro. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. Last question. What's the, what's your biggest advice for other folks? The biggest advice is to um, never take yourself too seriously. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart and lean not to your own understanding. Mm-hmm. Always demonstrate humility and discretion. Don't let the world know everything. You know, um, that's one thing I have to tell young people is, you, you know, if you're telling your, your, your significant other, if you're telling your parents that you're going to be one place, but you posting on Facebook and Instagram <laughs> and you somewhere else, like folks can see what you're doing. Um, but just always, you know, remember who you are, whose you are, where you come from. Um, there's an old saying, once a man and twice a child, meaning that the people that you see going up, you may see them when you're going down. Mm -hmm. And life is like that. So, I mean, and what I'm saying is you don't have to, we all step on people knowingly or unknowingly, meaning sometimes someone else's misfortune becomes your opportunity. Yeah. Um, but the but the, the trick is, is to always have humility and discretion in the opportunity, because it, it, you may realize that it's, let's just say, you know, someone ha- has a big blow up with the boss. The boss fires them. They move you into their position. And the person may be like, you know, OK, you know, Sky uh, Shate, you know, they've been able to come up based on my misfortune. But if you have a relationship with that person, you can just help them understand, like, you know, I just I got asked to do this right here. And, you know, uh, whatever you can teach me, whatever I can learn from, you know, I appreciate it because you just never know. You may fall out with the boss, too, and they may get a job somewhere else and they may bring you on because they can see the character. In you. Yeah. 
So, you know, um, so those are the things that I would give is, you know, always remain true to yourself. Uh, always try to treat people right. Always give folks the benefit of a doubt. You know, never let what you see on the surface be all that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, that Those are important things. I mean, you know, is, is to be able to. And, and then this is the last thing. Just because something is not real to you doesn't mean it's not real. So I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I, I do want to throw in one more. Those are really, really great uh, tips of advice. You mentioned your book. Can you remind us the title of your book? Because I definitely want to get it. We want to link to it. Uh, yeah. Um, the title of the book is The Legend of the Black Mecca, um, Politics and Class in the Making of Modern Atlanta. Um, it's with the University of North Carolina Press. If you if, if someone is interested in purchasing, I would suggest you go to the UNC website. Okay. And the code that will give you 40% off <laughs> is 01DAH40. 01DAH40. Right. I, I wrote a book to keep my job. A lot of people are like, well, Ben, you mean you ain't out here selling these, slanging these books? I'm like, that ain't for for me. But I will say this. Um, the book is shook trees in a lot of ways. And uh, it really does help us to understand where we are and what we're doing. It promotes this idea of black political empowerment, electoral politics in terms of the black new South, which is, uh, which is really allowed me real gravitas in the political world uh, in terms of how Southern, Southern voting strategies for black people. And so uh, I'm able to sit in those arenas, those sit at those tables as a kingmaker to help people get elected and help them understand the popular political sentiment of black Southerners. And so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's what we're doing. Ma'am. Yeah, I, I I got a whole cadre of them over here, but uh, but nah, this is the book cover. I tell you all this. I mean, um, I talked with Donald Glover, and they gave me the font. So the TV show Atlanta, yeah. uh, doesn't yeah. work. So they they gave me the font for it. Uh, what you see here is on one side you see beautiful black people, political figures, civil rights figures, and a new beautiful city of Atlanta. And then on the other side you see the 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 parents of the, the mothers of the missing and murdered children. So on one level, you got this city that's booming, but then they're killing black kids. So the truth is somewhere in between. Wow. I named this book, The Legend of the Black Mecca, because with every legend, there's truth. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm not saying that it's not what it is. Mm-hmm. We just got to figure out what's real and what isn't. Because if we if we believe a lie, we can always be fooled. So, you know. So, yeah. Okay. yeah that looks like good book club selection. Right. Next book up. <laughs> yeah. But if y'all do a book club selection and they, they they read it and want to talk to me, that's cool. Another haze, just to tell you this, another haze is people will read the jacket of the book and see the book and want to try to discuss it with me and they haven't read it. Mm-hmm. And it's important to read it because the book is not what you think it is. It's, it's not like hell bent on like discrediting in Atlanta, it's re- it really kind of situates some things. And uh, as one of my partners told me one time, he said, man, you hit us in our hearts with that Atlanta child mother cha- chapter. And then he said, and then you followed it up with the funk. Because I, mean, I really get into the hip hop scene and, you know, the uses of bass guitar. I get into all of that. So, um, but, you know, um, I'm just I'm just blessed that I can't remember writing the book, to be honest. With you. I mean, I remember it, but I can't. I'll read things and be like, that clearly is not me. Mm-hmm. I'm a vessel. I am purely yeah. a vessel. And, mm-hmm. and see, I recognize that. Yeah. So I don't even try to get in the way of what the creator is trying to do. I just mm-hmm. I just sit over here and try to be a vessel. 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. I think. Uh, um, did you? Y'all have made me feel, I feel like I'd have had me a good therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> we usually have like a music, a song for the moment. Um, but I think it makes sense for you to, to choose the song considering your thesis topic. So, um, Oh man, my favorite song of all time. I'm telling y'all a whole lot right here. Right <laughs> Whenever I get a new set of headphones, mm-hmm. um, a new set of a new car, mm-hmm a new stereo in any kind of way. I play the song In Due Time by Outkast. Okay. That's my favorite song of all time. It's a, it's actually a prayer. It's yeah. actually a conversation between man and God. And you know what the song, where did CeeLo kind of talks it out, but it says, just keep your faith in me. This is God telling mankind, just keep your faith in me. Don't act impatiently. You'll get where you need to be in due time. Even when things are slow, hold on and don't let go. I'll give you what I owe in due time. And the baseline is cool. I'm 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 kind of a musician too. So baseline is real cool and, and some different things. So um that's one of them. But um it just depends. You can always go with that for me, mm-hmm. but it just depends. I mean, you know. Smokey Robinson's cruising is is what I'm listening to right now. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, I might be on some Badu one day, and then I might be on some Curtis Mayfield and some Gil Scott Heron, and then you know, kind of bringing it back around to some Nina Simone. So you know, we we I, I'm a I'm a little bit of a music head uh, when it comes to that. So you know, we we let the spirit hit us, and you know, sometimes Marvin Gaye will move us, and then um, then sometimes I got to get on that UGK and that whole love. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I guess the one, the last thing is we always want to know how, what can we do to help your work, your cause mm-hmm. on our own? Um, keep me prayed up. Um, but, but also, I mean, you know, uh, continue to do what you all are doing because, you know, uh, some of this history stuff is, is triggering to people and it's traumatic. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, but you know, how you can help me is whenever you need me, call me. Because, I mean, I can't provide context and um, I'm at a place in time where I, I don't ever shy away from helping good people. Mm-hmm. Um, what I have to fight off are mm-hmm. people who are not good people who want my time and energy. But um, I feel as if, if, if you know, if we really invest and take take stock in our people and trying to do the right thing. I, I, I believe that the creator sees that. and. Um, you know, when it is all said and done, we can all we all will we, we can all be ushered into, you know, whatever the reward is for us when we leave this earth. And so, you know, how you can help me is keep doing what you're doing and, and, and use me as a resource. I, I'm, I am a resource and it is important that we that we continue to have these conversations. And Scott, I, I, you, you don't even know how much I watch what you do, because I've, I've I always you know, I don't know if you remember this, but you met my older brother at the conclave. and. 2011. Yep, I did. And I told I told my brother, I said, it's one of the best cues I know. And and but this is and this is why I say this to you. When we first met, you were living down in Selma. You were living right outside of Selma. Mental. You, yeah, you were doing mental health work. And I looked at you and 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 what's crazy about it is you used to go to Pastor Johnson's church in Birmingham. Mm-hmm. Lighthouse. Yeah, like so I was a member of the church and then I ended up moving to Tuskegee. 
but I would see you with, you know, Gary and Pam and, and, um, you got a cousin that went to UAB with me too. Um, Tremaine. Tremaine. Um, and I, so I would see you, but I don't think you were a bruh yet. Mm-mm. And then one day I was in Tuskegee and you was like, yeah, what's up? And you won an award for IQ for the mental health work that you were doing. I said, anybody that can go down to Selma and try to do some mental health work, I was like, they must be great. <laughs> I'm being straight up honest with you. <laughs> so, yeah, man. So, you know how that goes. Yes, so, sir. It's all good. It's all good. Good stuff. Yeah, we appreciate you. Yeah, we appreciate you being on with us, brother. That you know, this is um is is just an excellent first episode, man. Excellent introduction into you know really what we want to be talking about about purpose work and about the things that we all need to be doing. I think that we um oftentimes we we get uh, caught up in this belief that that um I gotta buy into to only this plan, right? Or only this thing, or you talking about finances, and, and that don't mean nothing for what we're trying to do. I think what um, a lot of other folks have understood that we don't always understand is that everybody has a, a seat at the table. Everybody has a piece of this work that we should be doing, yeah. a part of the overall plan. And I want to help us with getting to that understanding that history, therapy, uh, arts, arts, everything, yeah. Politics, edu- like, education, yeah. Place. Yeah, culinary. I mean, even if you are in the service production, even yep. if you build homes, if you're a construction worker, it's yep. like, and, and see, I'm able to see the the, the value in everything. Mm-hmm. I'm even I'm even able to see the thought process and value of someone who sells dope because what they really learn that from is from the American government, American business. But the thing about it is, if you could take that, if you if you can move it from drugs. Now, let's just say you could package cakes. <laughs> you, you, you understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and, and what I'm learning from cats like that is how to package my faculty, my thought process. I mean, I franchise my knowledge base. Mm. And I'm not, I mean, I ain't trying to sell it to everybody. But again, you know, you can't be from New York and say, I saw you in a documentary and I want you to be on my documentary. But you don't send me anything because... I recognize this, and, and I need to be careful about how I say this because people are going to see me as being arrogant either way it goes. And what I'm saying is that people see what they want to see. Yeah. And I'm, that's, that's one of the things I've learned. But um, <clears throat> I recognize that when I get on a documentary or, or, or a particular TV show, that I actually bring the credibility. Mm. Mm. And, and the blessing of that is when I was able to do the Maynard Jackson documentary and I'm sitting in the room with President Bill Clinton and Vernon Jordan and Al Sharpton and Andy Young and mm-hmm. and I'm able I'm my job is to straighten them out and they're looking at me like he really knows this stuff yeah and my mm-hmm. thing was is the reason I knew it is because I was operating in my gift first thing and the second thing is that um, I studied it I really studied it so I didn't have to make up anything I just went with it you know so so yeah so that's that, that's what we're doing so y'all keep doing what y'all do. Mm, Appreciate you, Mo. Thank you. Well, Mo, thank you so much for joining us. This conversation has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Learned a lot. I feel inspired. I feel refreshed. Mm -hmm. I feel excited about the work that you're doing. Um, I I feel excited about learning more about it. So thank you uh, for the work that you're doing and how it's impacting, you know, our city, our community, our people is beautiful. Pleasure is all mine.
right. So thank you all for joining the conversation. We Thanks, are the John. Hazes. This is the Love Haze. And until next time, we challenge you to pull up to your purpose. Pull up to it. All right. Peace, y'all. I'm pulling up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, baby, and I love, 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 love